This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the Full Cry Podcast. Okay, everybody. So I have John Murray and Matt Johnson with me here today. We are here to discuss No Ordinary Day, the new book that comes out. As of recording, this will be out when the book is out, but the book comes out three days from now on June 8th, published by Adlib. Who should I start with first, you think? Should I start with Matt or John? Who wants to go through their career first before we get on to the book? I, th- I think you should always start with the character upon which this story is is um, is built, and that is John. Let's start with you, John, then. So let's talk about your career, your career in the police. How is, how did that come about? Is that something you always wanted to be when you grew up? Yes, it, it was. I mean, I I, um, I joined the police cadets uh, when I was 16 years old, straight from school. Um, now, Aberdeen in Scotland, a long way north, uh, came down to London, saw the bright lights, and I decided that was for me. That was because... Aberdeen at that particular time before the oil the and, and um, the, the, the the sort of expansion there, uh, there were no jobs. So it was either leave school and go to the local factory, or do something else. So I decided that I would that I would come down here. It's actually strange because as a kid we used to go to the Saturday morning cinema, uh, which was which was great. I think I think it, in our money it, I think it was ten pence. Um, you know. Couple of, a couple of bob at the time, um, but we went to this the, the Saturday morning cinema. I was fifteen years old, and um, we went into the centre of Aberdeen, and there was a caravan parked up with the Metropolitan Police careers people in it, and just in a whim, I, I popped in there, and uh, signed up and was accepted for an interview. Came down to London, you know, all those years ago, and uh, I've never looked back. I've you know I've enjoyed every minute of it. How did you find it? So post-interview, you get accepted, everything goes swimmingly. When you were in the police proper, for better use of a term, how did you find that initial stage when your ambition has come to fruition? Well, I mean, straight from training, I went to the West End, went to Bow Street Police Station, which was, uh, you know, covered Leicester Square and, uh, you know, large bits of the, the West End. And um, there was a lot of guys there from from up north there was a lot of guys there from scotland so um i wasn't alone and i I made good friends and they looked after me as well but it was a big transition um you know um but you know being a young lad 16 17 18 19 year old um you know it was a dream come true you think it the benefit would have not been as great had you not had some fellow northerners with you there do you think that really brought you out of your shell a little bit Yes, it did. I mean, because I was—I came down here. I was on my own, and you know, I didn't know anybody. Um, and because those guys were there for me, it, you know, it helped me through. And, and you know, it was—it was great times and, and and great camaraderie. What are your memories of? You were a sol- were you a soldier first, Matt? Is that right? And then you joined the yeah. police after. Is that your story? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, you you laugh, but I I I never had any intention whatsoever of becoming a policeman. As a young man, my aspirations were always to join the army. Join the army at 18 years old. I did um, a regular commissions board, signed on for a short service commission, 
Um, and then found that actually I didn't enjoy it anywhere near as much as I'd hoping to do. I had this, I think, this romantic idea of what soldiering was all about, but the realities of it weren't anywhere near as exciting or interesting as I expected. These were in the these were the days where deployments for soldiers meant effectively uh, a posting to um, Germany, in all probability, and that's what the case was for me, or Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland was um, a, not a very pleasant place to be sent at all. So you either went to a horrible posting, uh, uncomfortable and dirty and messy and in, a, in an environment you didn't really want to be, to a boring posting in Germany. Um, and a friend of mine, um, a fellow called Phil Davenport, was a PC at Vine Street. Mm-hmm. And we we met for, for lunch one day in a, a pub in Harrow, North London, which is where I was from. And he said to me, what are you going to do after the army? And I said, I've got no idea. And he said, well, why don't you join the police? And I laughed. Because um, when we were youngsters, Phil Davenport and I used to go onto the roof of Woolworths in Rainers Lane in northwest London. Um, and uh, we used to bang on the windows of Woolworths until the alarm went. And when the local police turned up in their panda car and started checking the doors for burglars, we used to drop water bombs on them. Uh, and this was one of our, our forms of evening entertainment. So when Phil said that he was a PC and he was suggesting that I should also become a policeman, um, I laughed and I said, crazy, they'll never have me. What if they find out what we used to do when they were kids? And then and then Stuart, to be honest with you, he showed me his paycheck. And his wow. paycheck showed me that he was earning nearly three times as much as I'd been earning as a second lieutenant in the army. And I said to him, goodness me, that looks good. I think I'm going to try that for a little while until I can think of something better. 20 odd years later, I was still there. <laughs> Do you think because of the army, you had some transferable skills that benefited you to lead you into that two-decade career? Yes, I, I definitely did have some a sense of self-discipline. Um, so getting up for early term was 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 never a problem uh, and that kind of stuff. But I I do remember when when I first got got posted out to Albany Street Police Station in North London, um, walking out on the street on my first day in uniform, and of course. The, the public don't know that you're on your first day mm-hmm. and they just assume you know what you're doing. They don't know that you've just come straight out of training school and you've this is the first time you've put this uniform on proper. Um, and it's a very, very steep learning, to, learning curve. Um, so in many ways, although I was prepared discipline-wise for it, um, I was still extremely naive. And of course, as an ex-army officer, um, it was quite inevitable that at my first sh- sh- um, police station, I got called Rupert. You'll have to explain that one to me. That's gone over well, my head. Army officers in the <laughs> army are known as Ruperts. Okay. And of course, as soon as, soon as my my new shift that I got posted to work with discovered that I I had been educated at, at the Royal Military Academy of Sandhurst, I was Rupert Parfit. <laughs> so okay. that was that was that was my name. So I became a Rupert. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you became a Rupert. Okay, makes sense. So at what point then, because you two must have met in the police force, right? Is that how you two first became known to each other? No, no. We John and I didn't know each other at all until, until about four years ago. Okay. Um, what happened was um, I had, to take a story back, I had done the ambulance escort that took that, that took that took Yvonne to hospital. Right. I had known Yvonne and I knew her fiance. I knew of John, but mm-hmm. didn't know John. Um, three, four years ago, I think it was John. 
when Victoria Derbyshire decided that she was going to do a feature on her television program. Um, and as part of the feature, um, she invited me, uh, a former PC called Tony Long, who'd been in the Met Police Firearms branch, and a legendary PC by the name of Cl- Clive Mabry, who will no doubt move on to in a minute what Clive Mabry's story is, incredible story. But she got us together to talk about the day. And during the course of this day, I think it was Clive Mabry came up with the idea that there ought to be a book telling the story of John's incredible campaign and, and his you know, nearly 40-year fight for justice. Now, they knew that I, by then, was a novelist, that I had three published novels behind me. I'd never written a non-fiction book, and so this was going to be a new idea. Um, but, you know, when when John Murray asks you to consider doing a project, he can be very persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I did there is I've taken two and two and I've uh, made five with the the mutual association of Yvonne there. So let's rewind a little bit further then. So the book, as I mentioned, is called No Ordinary Day. And it's about the, not only the murder of Yvonne Fletcher, but also John, your, like like, uh, Matt just said, almost four decade long campaign there to get Uh justice for her. If we can just set the scene a little bit, we spoke briefly before we started recording about the history aspect of this book, all about Libya the anti-Gaddafi demonstrators and how this all came about. What do you recall from that time period, John, about the UK's involvement with Libya? Well, I mean, it was rather sparse because um, um, I didn't keep up with with, with Libyan affairs at all uh, or any really any, any international affairs. But, um, I mean, that particular morning on the, on the 17th of April, um, 1984, we were just sent to the, the Libyan embassy to, to place a demonstration. Um, I knew there'd been sort of trouble in, in Libya, um, and uh, I, I knew what this demonstration was about, but obviously I didn't realise, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the events that, that were going to happen that day. So uh, no, I was completely in the dark, like, like most of us, really, because, you know, in central London, uh, it, in the police force, um, demonstrations, you know, were happening nearly every day. And uh, they were nothing out of the ordinary at all. You know, they, normally they went uh, uh, past quite, quite peacefully and and quickly. So tell me about Yvonne then. So Yvonne, basically, <clears throat> your best mate in the force. Can you tell me a little bit about her personality, why she stood out so much as a member of the team? Well, I mean, <clears throat> Yvonne was bright and bubbly, five foot nothing. I mean, you know, her, she was lucky to get into the Met because uh, I think she just made the height or, or maybe they made a special allowance for her. Um, but I first met her at Bosey. We, we, we worked on different shifts, but our, our paths crossed many times. Um, a couple of years you know, later, uh, we were asked to be um, community officers, the, the sort of first home beat officers. So uh, we got together uh, and we worked the, the, the home base around Covent Garden. Uh, we worked together. Um, we knew everybody. We went to see all the residents, the businesses, the theatres, the pubs. We knew everybody. They knew us. So, you know, if, if anybody, you know, in the local area had a problem, nine times out of ten they would come into the police station and either either ask for Yvonne or myself. Um, we'd won primary school in, in, in Covent Garden, St. Clemens Day in school, and we used to go there daily and speak to the parents, speak to the children, you know, to attend all the meetings there. So so we were well known and, and you know, and well liked. 
Can you describe to me? So you mentioned that the protests, like what happened on on that morning, April seventeenth, nineteen eighty four, happened quite often. Typically, they were uneventful. Was there a point that morning where you, before the the incidents happened, around about quarter past ten, was there a, a time where you thought? Did you feel a, a sense of change in the air, or as far as you were aware, was it just going swimmingly? Was there nothing to be concerned about? No, it, it was quite normal. I mean, you know, uh, we, we got there early in, in, in the morning, uh, about an hour or so before the, the demonstration was due to start. Um, the, you know, the, the anti-Gaddafi guys started to arrive, got off the coaches, and uh, you know, came uh, came up to us uh, behind the Marius. They were all okay. They were lively. They were shouting, but they were quite friendly, uh, and you know we were talking to them, um, you know as we normally did. Nothing out of the ordinary at all. You know, completely normal. So, Ma, if we just bring you in here, because the book starts with a very detailed history of the Libyan connection and the Gaddafi stuff that's going on in Libya, as well as the dissatisfaction with the protesters here in the UK. How important was it to incorporate that into the book at the very start? Well, the, the, reason, the reason for doing that is because the the the, the book is aimed at a, a, a wide age range of potential readers. There are going to be those of uh, John and my age who are very familiar with the story. Um, and there's, there's something I've I've found whilst doing the, the the circuit as an author, doing talks to audiences and things like that, that you find that members, certain members of the audience of a certain age, um, remember the events of that day vividly. Um, you've got to remember this is one of the the greatest tragedies in UK policing. It's the only time, and it remains the only time that a police officer has been murdered whilst the event and, and while she is being filmed by TV cameras. And then that very day, um, that murder is actually transmitted on television and people see it with their own eyes. It's never happened before, it's never happened since. It's a one and only occasion. And people remember it. People remember where they were, what they were doing. It inspired many people to actually join the police. But when you look at a, a younger generation, you tend to find that people, although they may have heard of the events, um, they're not familiar with the detail. Uh, quite a lot of people confuse it, for example, with the Iranian embassy siege, which took place four years earlier, where the SAS stormed in. And there's those incredible photographs of the Iranian embassy being stormed. Um, but it was a different embassy, different event, four years later. Um so it was important, really, in writing the book to set the context for those people who were sufficiently interested to want to know about it, to know, understand what was going on politically in the in the, in the background, um, so that they would understand the events that transpired. I think that's what's unique about this book. I do read a lot of true crime, and typically the focus is on the story, the characters, the background. And a lot of time, the context can be lost on younger readers such as myself if it's an older case. So I think it's really important that you bring that in the political side. I'm not really into politics myself, but it still sets the tone. I enjoy history, so it's a good thing that you brought that in. Speaking of, I don't want to say important photographs, but powerful images. There is an image, John, of yourself cradling Yvonne after she was shot. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts when not only looking back at that image, but at the time that it happened, 
what was running through your head at that point? Well, I wanted to make sure she was okay. Um, but on the other hand, I was thinking, what's happened? Is it going to happen again? Or could it happen again? And the other thought that obviously went through our mind is we've got to get out of here pretty sharpish. Um, all those things were, were, were rattling through your head in a, in a matter of seconds because um, at that particular point, I still didn't really know what happened. At what point did you realise? It was it was you know probably a few minutes later when I, when I, you know when I saw the blood and. Um, and uh, the screams, because obviously, you know, there, there were demonstrators who'd been shot as well, uh, who mm. were behind us. Uh, when I saw the blood and and, and saw the, and, and heard the screams, then obviously it started to click. Something's happened here. We got to get out. And Matt, you mentioned that you were part of the the hospital escort for Yvonne that morning. Mm. At what point were you made aware of what had gone on? Yeah, I, I, I just before I mentioned that, Stuart, I would just add to to what John's mentioned there the the fact that this this was a a routine demonstration it was noisy uh, there was there was anxiety between the two different factions the pro the pro gaddafis and the anti gaddafis but nobody absolutely nobody could embrace the concept even that somebody would lean out of the first floor window of a, an embassy building and fire a machine gun on 40, fully automatic at the people standing outside. The whole concept was totally alien to police thinking at the time. Nobody was aware that that kind of thing could happen. It had never happened before. It's never happened since. Every single officer who um, was there facing away, they had their backs to the embassy, had no idea what had happened. John, I remember when he, I first interviewed him, he described it as thinking it was firecrackers. And I think many of the other officers say the same thing. They thought it was fireworks had gone off. And you see in the, in the television coverage them standing there for several seconds, sort of stunned. And the, the, the square is completely silent for several seconds after the machine gun has gone off. As it gradually dawns on people what has happened. Now, there are those amongst the police officers who happened to be looking in the right direction, who saw the gun, saw the two guns, in fact, because there were two windows, two guns were fired, and they saw it happening. Of course, gradually, those people start shouting at their colleagues, and people like John, Sergeant Howard Turner, that he was standing with, realized at that moment they, they were in the land of fire. They'd been subject to machine gun fire. For all they knew, the machine gunner was just reloading, ready to fire again. Yet none of them panicked. None of, the, none of them did what they shouldn't do. None of them ran away. They all thought about evacuating the victims, Yvonne and the 12 demonstrators, the Libyan demonstrators who were injured, and they got them out first. Now, they were lucky. They were lucky because if that machine gunner had been reloading and had fired a second burst of bullets, there would have been a lot more people killed. But they showed incredible bravery that day. Now, to answer your question, um, I was driving a police traffic car 
Um, and the first I knew of it was when we were called on on the uh, the radio system from Scotland Yard to say, can we go down to Charles II Street, pick up an ambulance and take the ambulance to Westminster Hospital on the hurry up? I didn't know who was in that ambulance. I didn't know what had happened. All I knew was that ambulance needed to be taken there very quickly. I didn't know John was in it. I didn't know that my friend Yvonne Murray, uh, sorry, Yvonne Fletcher was in it. Um, I only found out that afternoon when I went home after work at six o'clock, the six o'clock news came on and a picture of Yvonne flashed up on the screen. And that was the moment I learned it had been my friend in the ambulance. What was that ambulance journey like for you, John? Uh, well, it's one I'll, I'll certainly never forget. I mean, you've got to remember that uh, in that ambulance, because only, initially only one ambulance turned up uh, and there were a lot of people injured there. Um, but I was in the ambulance with Yvonne and there were three or four Libyans uh, uh, in the same ambulance who were sitting on the floor who'd been wounded and were bleeding everywhere. Um, so you can imagine, you know, the carnage and, and you know, the pain, the suffering, the blood. Um, it's it's a journey I'll, I'll, I will never, ever forget. What happens when you arrive at the hospital? So, Matt, you mentioned you've got no idea who's in the back. It's been unloaded. You can't obviously see back there. Yvonne gets taken to hospital. Do you then get put in, in a waiting area, John? What what happens upon arrival at the hospital? Yeah, well, I mean, we arrived at at, uh, at the Westminster Hospital. She's taken straight in, straight straight through to resus. I'm I'm put in a in, in a little room, um, like a, a side room, no window, just a table and chairs. Um, I'm told to wait there about half an hour, forty five minutes roughly. Um, a doctor came in, had his gown on, and and a mask and he, he said yeah, he, she's been shot uh, we're taking her through to theatre now she should be okay and I said thank God for that and off he went When did you hear the, the sad news that Yvonne had succumbed to her injuries? Well that was again roughly about an hour, hour and a half later um, the same doctor came back uh, and he was actually crying and he said to him I'm sorry um, we lost her uh, on the operating theatre the the uh, internal injuries was was just too much. The, the you know the bullet had you know gone through her spleen and all sorts of things. The, the damage inside was terrible, and we didn't realise. Uh, I'm so sorry. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now back to the story. And you'd made a promise to Yvonne to catch this person that had shot her, brought her to these horrible injuries, and succumbed to her death there. When you hear that news, is that what your first sort of thought is? Are you driven to, I've got to catch this guy? Do you have time to process what's going on with what the doctor's told you? What's going through your head at that point? At that particular point, you know, I'm saying to myself, why? Why has this happened? You know, what's the reason? Why, Why Yvonne and not me? Because, you know, at the demonstration, we changed places three or four times. If I changed places once more, it it could have me. It could have been me. Um, and I was saying to myself in that room, maybe it should have been me. Um, you know, is it my fault? You know that that she's died. Um, you know, I I should be looking after her. Um, all sorts of um, thoughts went through my mind. But then, then I realised, you know, no that's not the case um you know um she was in the wrong place at the wrong time i was in the right place at the right time um 
I had doubts. Uh, I still have doubts. Um, but I'm sure she'll understand. What effect do you think it's had on you mentally, this continued fight for justice after all these decades? Oh, it's it's it's, it's been hard. You know, I'm coming up to 40 years now uh, fighting fighting for justice. Um, my mental health is, is, um, has suffered. Uh, financially, uh, I've suffered. Uh, physically, um, I've had three heart attacks, um, but I'm still here, and I will still fight, and, and I will fight until the end. And Matt, just to touch on your career with the police, so I understand it ended in 1999, and this was um, retirement that came on the back of mental health with yourself uh, with PTSD. Do you f- how much do you feel that incident? contributed to that and how are you now with regards to that how has that affected you over the last couple of decades um i'd i'd been start, start, starting to in the late 1990s i'd been starting to experience symptoms of what i now know because it's been diagnosed um was was um post-traumatic stress um i was getting loss, loss of sleep um having nightmares um that kind of thing um where it came to head for me was um i was called uh, as the duty inspector at stoke newington place i was working at the same time and one of my jobs as as the duty inspector was to carry out the initial investigation at at the scenes of um, sudden deaths and i was called to a rooftop party where um a young a a group of youngsters have been enjoying like an evening um, having, having drinks uh, and entertainment on, on this rooftop um, in Stoke Newington. Uh, and one young lady had decided that she was going to sit on a parapet wall. Uh, she'd lost her balance and fallen into the street outside. And when we arrived, she was being worked on by the paramedics. Now, I went up to uh, the roof party. I took some of my colleagues with me. And my job was to 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 ascertain whether we were dealing with an accidental death or something more sinister. And if it had been something more sinister, I would be passing the inquiry on to the CID to deal with. Um, as I started in the initial investigation, I went over to the parapet wall. I looked out into the street, and what I saw um, was not this young lady being worked on by the, the paramedics. It was a flashback of Yvonne being cradled in St. James's Square by John and his two his two colleagues. Um, I saw it as, as clear as day. Um, that was my first experience of a flashback. Um, not long after that, I, I experienced much worse symptoms as well, and the flashbacks continued. Ended up getting um, referred for counselling. Um, and that counselling, um, well, to cut a long story short, that counselling took, took the form of writing therapy. Writing therapy eventually reached a point where my counsellor said to me, had I ever considered writing a book? And I confess I laughed when she first said that because the very idea that I would write a book was something I'd never considered. If you fast forward several years, um, I was at home. I'd retired. I was now living in South Wales. Again, no intention of writing. But I um, I had also been involved in the Regent's Park and Hyde's Park bombings in 1982. Um, and at that the Hyde Park bombing, I, um, I got to know a, a corporal by the name of Michael Pemberton. 
Michael Pemberton was riding Sefton, uh, which was the horse that was in, uh, was badly injured at the Hyde Park bombing and made this incredible recovery. And it was a real a human interest story that, that kept the, the public interested for, for many weeks subsequently to the bombing. In 2012, Michael Pemberton committed suicide uh, because he'd been suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And when I heard about that on the news, it so moved me that I decided that um, I was going to write that book that the um, the councillor suggested I should do. Uh, and I sat down on my computer and I, I started to, to weave my personal experiences into a novel. And uh, that became my first book. And the book did pretty well by all accounts. It was uh, <clears throat> shortlisted for a writers a crime writers association dagger award. So you yeah, clearly right, had a bit yeah. had a bit of a knack for it. How cathartic was that experience then? Was it something that you felt did help? Extremely, extremely. Um, when I when I was writing the novel, I was I was imparting and, and including my personal life story and, and experiences into the novel. And although I was a uh, creating a work of fiction much of me was was plowed into it um at the time i'd only ever intended that i was going to write one book i didn't realize that it was going to do well and that the publisher was going to ask me to write subsequent novels as well um it was it was a i would say in the context of the book we're talking about this evening it was a very cathartic experience and it was very good training because I had um, a very good editor that I worked with who helped me turn myself into a cop who could tell a story into a, an author who could write something that was good enough for the commercial market. Um, he enabled me to do that. So when John said to me, would I be interested in, in writing the Yvonne Fletcher story and the story of his campaign to secure justice for her, I again went through the same kind of emotions that I went through when I was writing my first book. When I was writing some of the things about John's experiences and about what had happened and about Yvonne, it brought back those very uncomfortable feelings from like 25, 30 years ago. But I'd been through it before. I'd been, I'd done it when I wrote Wicked Game, the first book. Um, and so it helped me because I knew that Although there were times where, for example, I had to walk away from the keyboard, I had to walk away from the computer because it was getting just a little bit too uncomfortable for me. I knew it wouldn't last and I knew I could come back to it. Um, and then it was just a question of the playing on and, and, and getting it done. And John, what was the experience like for yourself? So working with Matt, telling him your experiences, your campaign over these decades, what effect did that experience of I suppose unleashing, it must have felt like getting a weight off your shoulders, no? Yeah, I mean, you, you've taken the words out of my mouth there. It, it, it was a relief because, you know, for a very long time, I'm doing this on my own. I've got no one else to speak to, no one else to discuss things with. Uh, and it, it, it's all up in my head, although, you know, I had notes and all sorts of things. Um, it was a big relief. Um, 
it's something I could never do. I mean, I could never write a book. I, I could never put down, you know, the experiences and, and, and the things that I've done. I could never put that in writing. Um, so Matt was the ideal person to do that because in a, in a strange way, I mean, he's he's part of the story as well. You know, he was there. Um, he, he can remember it. He can relive it. Uh, and that was very important to me. It is unique, the, the kind of unknown relationship you had at the time, albeit you were separated by the door of an ambulance from the driver's mm-hmm. side to the back. It's amazing that you were both there at the same time. You just had no idea that you mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. were there. Sure, that's right. That's right. It's amazing that you've come together. If we could just talk about that campaign a little bit, John, before meeting Matt and writing this book, what challenges have you come across? I know it's been a long time and there's probably been several, but can you pick out any key challenges that you've come across or perhaps something that's been unraveled that took you by surprise? Well, for, I mean, for a long, long time, I mean, I, I, I remained in the service, you know, for a few years uh, after uh, after Yvonne's murder, um, and I was I was concerned because nothing seemed to be, you know, being done. Um, the investigation seemed to stall. You know, um, I wasn't hearing anything. Um, it was strange because I knew there must be something going on, but nobody would tell me anything. Um, you know, I I would try and get in touch with senior officers at Scotland Yard, but I wouldn't get a reply. Now that's unusual. Um, you know, why is that happening? Um, I was a victim, you know, like like many others that day. But um, you know, we, we weren't being told anything at all. Um, it was strange. It was unusual. Um, so I knew, you know, at the back of my mind something wasn't quite right with with this investigation and i started to dig a bit further and slowly but surely you know the the uh, the it, it started to unravel uh, but it, it took a long time um but you know we 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 did it was there anything that you uncovered when the process of writing the book began matt was there any little rabbit holes that you went down any stones that were previously unturned that you discovered once that writing process had begun for this book, yeah, um, I started with 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 by interviewing people who were present during the day. Um, that opened doors up um, to people who were involved in the investigation, and to people that, in, that were involved in the hostage and siege negotiation, because there was the longest siege. This 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 tragedy of this day was was followed by the longest siege in UK policing history where these Libyans were kept within. And I I was lucky because I think mostly because I'm ex-job, as we call it, ex-police myself, that people were prepared to talk to me because they knew my history as well. They knew if they didn't know me, they they sometimes heard of me, some were prepared to, to talk to me. And when they would talk to me, they would say, oh, you should try talking to such and such, and you should try talking to them. And then gradually you go down these end avenues. And I ended up with like like absolute wealth of unconnected information. Like a th- I described it, I remember to describe it to John as like a, a three-dimensional jigsaw, but I don't know quite how to put it together. There's a story here somewhere but it's it's got to coalesce and it's got to actually form in order to put it together and it and it was a very tough process to doing one of the key ingredients was when somebody suggested checking the national archives 
for historical records of what had been happening between the Home Office, Foreign Office and Cabinet Office in the 1980s. And because of the 30-year rule, loads of stuff had been sent to the, the, the National Archives. And it was just sitting there, waiting for somebody to say, could I please have a look at all, all the material relating to the such and such in relation to Libyan dissidents during the, the mid and late 1980s? I ended up with absolutely wads and wads of paper to wade through. And as I did so, it it led on to other questions. So I would do something like make a freedom of information request to the Foreign Office. And you get a standard letter back saying, blah, 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 no, sorry, you can't, that can't be disclosed on the grounds of whatever. So you'd apply again for something slightly different. So you'd make the wording slightly different. And then... And sometimes these processes took months before they would eventually agree mm -hmm. to release stuff. Gradually, this mysterious, mm -hmm. mysterious this this information would come through. And underly, underlying all this was this mysterious Duff report, a report that was commissioned by Margaret Thatcher in 1984 into the the, the shootings and the siege and all the history and everything had gone on. And it was written by Sir Anthony Duff, who went on to become the director of MI5. And this report, even now, is still secret, even though it should have been made available to the National Archives many years ago. It's not. It's being kept secret. But what we were able to find was by checking through things like Hansard's records in relation to parliamentary questions through freedom of information requests, that you find that there were people talking about the Duff report. And what they were saying about the Duff report clearly revealed what was in it. And so by a process of jigsaw uh, putting together, eventually, although you wouldn't get the detail of the Duff report, you could work out what was in it. And it revealed a picture of, of a government basically we're, we're up to no good. It's interesting you mentioned that because the, the subtitle of the book, so it's No Ordinary Day, the subtitle, Espionage, Betrayal, Terrorism mm -hmm. and Corruption, The Truth Behind the Murder of WPC Yvonne Fletcher. When you approached Matt to write this book, John, was your intention to highlight that corruption what was your goal when you wanted this book to come to fruition? Yeah, I mean, yes, it was. I mean, as Matt said, everybody knows the story of Yvonne Fletcher. Everybody knows, you know, what happened to her. What people didn't know and possibly didn't understand is what went on beforehand and what's gone on afterwards. And I think that is where the real story lies. You know, there were warnings given that day, which were never acted upon. One of the main reasons why the SES didn't storm the embassy, um, according to Liam Britton, who was Home Secretary at the time, you've got to remember that Margaret Thatcher was in Portugal for an EU thing. The main reason that they weren't um, storming the embassy because those people inside had diplomatic immunity. Mm -hmm. Nobody inside that building had diplomatic immunity. Nobody. So they could have done it. These are all things, you know, that we found out afterwards. The message given to, uh, you know, by Gaddafi to, to the People's Bureau the night before, cover the streets of London with blood. 
That was his message. That was intercepted. It was intercepted by the CIA in Maryland, passed on to GCHQ, never acted upon. It's all there. Um, but people don't, you know, didn't know about that. I didn't know about that, you know, for a long, long time. And that's where the, the corruption and the espionage angle comes in. Based on what you've said then, Yvonne's murder could have been prevented. Oh, yes. No doubt about that whatsoever. No doubt about it. How much of that frustration has driven you to try and get justice for this case? Where are we at it? Where, where, where are we with it now, should I say? This actual finding out what happened, someone being put to task for it? Well, I mean, we, we, we had our, um, our victory um, a couple of years ago, didn't we? Uh, in 2015, uh, Sally Mabrook was arrested, um, a Libyan who, who lived in uh, Reading and Berkshire. He was arrested for uh, conspiracy to murder and uh, money laundering, along with his wife and son. At an early stage, the money laundering was dropped and his wife and son you know, were released from the inquiries, but he remained on bail. Uh, a report went to the criminal, uh, the Crown Prosecution Service um, urging um, that criminal charges be brought against him for conspiracy to murder. Uh, unfortunately, the CPS uh, refused uh, the charges on the grounds that they, re- they needed some evidence or extra evidence from the uh, Foreign Office and the Home Office. The Foreign Office and the Home Office refused to hand over that evidence on the grounds of national security, so he couldn't be charged. Um, now, that was a disgraceful decision as far as I was concerned. So the only option left to me, now bearing in mind I, you know, I knew a lot about this evidence, I had to get that out in the public domain. So my, you know, the, the only way I could do that was to, to sue him in the High Court. I sued him for the, the, the princely son of one pound uh, in the High Court, uh, which we won. Um, against all the odds, we we won that case. He appealed against that to the appeal court, and he lost again. Um, so my next stage, uh, which I'm working on at the moment, is to take out a private criminal prosecution against him, uh, and hopefully get him convicted in a criminal court. Wow, interesting. So when this book comes out, then June eighth, like I said, by the time this episode comes out, gentlemen, it will be already published. Matt, what's your hope that people take away from this book? What are you hoping for in that regard? I think one of my main hopes is that for the first time, people will learn the entire truth, mm. the vast majority of the entire truth of, of what happened and why. It's always been a mystery to many people as to why all these Libyans who weren't actually entitled to diplomatic immunity were allowed to leave the country without being arrested or prosecuted. Why did this happen? The book will answer that question. It's always been a, a suspicion as to what was going on between the Libyans and the, the UK government about um, that would allow a, a situation like a, a non-prosecution and a, an allowance for them to go home. What, what, what was going on? Why was it many years ago that the leader of the Libyan Revolutionary Committee in the United Kingdom, the man John mentioned, Sally Mabrouk, why why was he allowed to leave the country and not be prosecuted on the so-called grounds of national security? How was it that this man, 
who was the prime suspect in the conspiracy for murdering Yvonne Fletcher, was ever allowed into the UK in the first place, and the Metropolitan Police were never told about it. It was kept secret from them. They only found out about his existence by accident. And as soon as they took steps to try and prosecute him, he's ejected from the country and declared persona non grata and sent out to Libya, where he's effectively untouchable. What was going on? What are these secrets? So we hope... We hope that what we've learned through these freedom of information requests and through talking to numerous witnesses has pieced together the whole story. So these national security grounds that were quoted that make a prosecution impossible will actually be exposed. And so there'll be no hiding behind them in order to try and avoid a prosecution. Mm. It's fascinating. This book, for people listening, I am going to link it in the description of this episode, gentlemen. It's it's got everything, this book. Literally everything. If you're a true crime fan, not just murder, tip of the iceberg, what we've discussed this evening. But it's called No Ordinary Day. June 8th, it comes out. It will be out now. If you're listening to this, there's a link in the episode description. Matt, John, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. A fascinating insight into this book and the process and the story. Really appreciate you coming on and thank you both for your time. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure, Stuart. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you.